Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. I got a call last night from a, a pastor friend. He's coming through in February and wanted to know if they could stop by. Yeah, I would love that. But um, he's been in ministry for a good bit of his life. He's About 15 years ago, he started a church with two people, his sister and his mother. <laughs> he said they put flyers out all over town. That first, that first uh, service, the only two people that showed up was his sister and his mother. And, uh, but God blessed his work, and that church grew to over 1,000. But he told me, he said, man, I came that close to quitting this year. He said, I've just, man, I just don't have it in me. He said, there were times where I told myself, I just, I don't think I can write another sermon because this whole COVID thing and the whole uncertainty and it just had ripped him apart. You know, COVID's come through these churches and it's gutted them. His church that used to run a thousand is running half that now, he said. And he said, and the people in the church were, They'd get so fired up about masks and vaccine and all those other things. And it's like they'd get mad if, if everybody was wearing a mask and then they would get upset about this or that. And he's like, man, by the time it was finally done, I was just like, I don't even know if I can do this anymore. And his is not, uh, it's not uncommon. In fact, uh, according to a, a recent Barna poll, three, uh, 38%, two out of five pastors admitted to seriously considering quitting the ministry this year. And as he talked, I was thinking about, you know, the difficulty sometimes that you run into in any kind of leadership position where you're responsible for a flock of people, be it a pastor or a leader or whatever. And, and the difficulty of making tough decisions that aren't going to make people unhappy and the isolation that that creates as a, as a consequence of it. I was reading one of Ian Fleming's books, James Bond, and uh, there was an interesting insight. You know, James Bond, he always reports to M. But M said this to, to Bond. He, he smiled briefly, seemed to make up his mind. He said mildly, James, has it ever occurred to you that every man in the fleet knows what to do except the commanding admiral? Bond frowned. He said, it hadn't occurred to me, sir, but I see what you mean. The rest only carry out orders. The admiral has to decide on the orders. I suppose it's the same as saying the supreme command is the loneliest post there is. And I think there are a lot of pastors right now who are in that position. Uh, Swindoll calls it the lonely howl of the top dog, and they're ready to quit because all of their effort and labor and all that they've worked for for five years, 10 years, 20 years has been gutted by this tragic disease. And people, some of them were going to leave anyway, and, and now they're gone. And they're looking around and they're going, well, I thought they were going to come back. And it's been two years now, and they're at football games and they're at the grocery stores, but they're not back at church. And they're just being nice. You know, at that point, they're just like, I just don't want to tell you I'm not coming back. And so I encouraged him and spoke words of blessing to him and reminded him of God's calling, things he already knew that he needed to hear. But you know, it's not just pastors. It's really all of us. I got another phone call yesterday from a, a, a life group leader, and he's man, I'm just burned out. I've been doing this for for years, and I just don't know that I've got the energy to keep doing it. I need I need time off. I need to be replaced. 
I flip through Facebook, I see a young mom with a brand new baby and she's got a tear on her cheek because she's sleep deprived and she's exhausted and she doesn't know that she can go any further. And, and you know, you, you know, you think, well, you know, I hate to tell you, but there's going to be a lot more of those tears before this thing is done. Um, but you just, you reach a point where you're just like, I don't think I can do this anymore. I know a, a guy right now who's got a wife dealing with dementia and he's having to care for her round the clock and he doesn't know if he, how long he can do it. This was not in the plan, you know. We don't plan for these things. And so as you look around and you begin to <clears throat> evaluate where we are as people, there are a lot of people right now, maybe you're one of them, I would assume so, who is struggling in the, in the uncertainty, the aftermath, just the blown apart feeling of this whole thing that has happened due to the pandemic and the racial unrest and the social unrest and the political unrest and what it's done in my family and in my church and every other way. And you're just exhausted. If there was a prevailing expression that people have today besides anxiety and uncertainty, it would be fatigue. And so we need a lift. I love it that Blake and the guys called this a lift because there comes a time in every life where you need a lift. I want to try to lift you tonight. God has called us to lift each other. Let's don't forget that, all right? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider, I love this part, let's consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Let me tell you something. The world out there is trying to consider how to stimulate you to bad deeds. But when you come to this place, it doesn't say, let's consider how to be petty and critical and hypersensitive and judgmental. It doesn't say any of that. It says when we come together, let's try to figure out how to stimulate each other to greater and greater righteousness and to love and good deeds, he says. Isn't that awesome? Not forsaking our own assembling together. And, and what a word for today. You know, we had one couple talk, tell one of our guys, said, look, I'm not coming back. We just realized we didn't miss it. They were honest. But you know, if, if, if church is a habit, then it's a habit that can be broken. But if it's a relationship, then it's a relationship that would be lost. And that becomes so vital and so important. And so we can't forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some. But now look at this, encouraging one another. And of course, that word encourage means what? To fill with courage. My job is to fill you guys with courage. Not fear, not doubt, not all that other stuff. There's a lot of guys who preach that think that's the that's key. we got to fill everybody with guilt and, and fear and doubt. It's to fill you with courage. Coming together for the sake of encouragement, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Come together for the sake of encouragement. Did it ever occur to you that encouragement is one of the main reasons we come together? I mean, of all the reasons we hear described sometimes of why you should go to church, encouragement, just to be around the saints, man. But I've got to say, if we're going to really be serious about this encouragement thing, because I've got to tell you, I think sometimes in a lot of places they've forgotten that. And church can become about everything but encouragement. But if we're really going to do it right, 
then we have to be very intentional about it. Because a lot of churches, don't get me wrong, and I hope this is never one of them, they can become sort of like, I don't know, did, when you went to visit grandma, did she have a formal living room? You know the place with the plastic still on the couches? <laughs> you know, white everywhere. You know, there were some places that Amy and I would have to go visit when, you know, we're a young pastor family and we've got these, uh, at the time, three rambunctious kids and we're terrified the whole time we're there that they're going to break some heirloom because the living room is like a museum. I can't live in a museum. And there are a lot of churches that are trying to be museums and they're doing a great job of it because they feel like a museum and all they want to do is cherish the past. Encouragement has to be intentional. Encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today, Hebrews 3.13, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, you know, Swindoll told this story years ago, and I never have forgotten it. It was early in my ministry. He said that he had an old, you know, he was a Marine, and he had an old Marine buddy who had finally gotten saved. And he said, you know, Chuck, I love everything about living for the Lord. I love the church. He said, but I got to tell you, sometimes I just miss the bar. It's not the boozing and the drinking. It's the old just time together. And from that, Swindoll wrote this. He said, churches need to be less like national shrines and more like local bars. That's kind of scandalous. Less like untouchable cathedrals and more like well-worn hospitals, places to bleed rather than monuments to look at, places where you can take your mask off, let your hair down, places where you can have your wounds dressed. You know, I, I was thinking about that, that sometimes for some people, and maybe you're one of them, this is the only place you ever get encouraged. I mean, I've, I've had friends, you've got them too, that their home was pretty discouraging and they might have a dad. I know a guy had a dad. He just kept telling him, you're a loser, man. You're never going to amount to anything. And some people who maybe it's not that degree of negativity. It's just that you're, you're a zero. You're a cipher. You're a, you're a missing person. You're a ghost in the room because you never get noticed and nobody ever takes the time to single you out and at least lift you up. And we got to be careful because those guys are coming to our church too. But this is the only, man, that wasn't my experience. You know, my experience was I was encouraged from the time I was born. You know, my dad had his faults, just going to say. And he was a mixed bag. He was brilliant and uh, selfish. He was kind and sacrificial. I know at least two people that he saved their life physically saved their life. I know that for a fact. He was heroic in that regard. Um, and I know other people that he helped. Dad was a professor. And, uh, you know, a lot of professors don't, won't really give the students the time of day. Dad wasn't that kind of guy. And, and there were a lot of people that he helped get out of school. They would get kind of stuck on one class and couldn't get out. And they'd go meet with Dad. And I, I, I was sitting in his office. I heard him do it. He'd go, well, let's see. You know, you need calculus, but didn't you take general college math? I think that'll work. And he'd work their deal around because this guy's like stuck. He's never going to pass calculus. Just get him out of here and let him go make a life. And there are two guys here in Washita Parish since I moved here who've come up to me and said, your dad saved my life. I had him in school. I was stuck. You talk about a small world. One of them is Bill Angeli, who teaches over at OCS. 
He had my dad in college. He said, your dad saved me. And it worked out great for my sons who had him in class because, you know, he always wanted to find a way to say thank you, right? But you know, dad drank a lot. Dad partied a lot. Dad was gone a lot. In fact, dad rarely came home before midnight or one or two in the morning. I remember when I started dating this Christian girl, her dad was home at five o'clock. I'm like, what's your dad doing here? And she's like, what are you talking about? He's here every night. I'm like, really? Really? When you're in a dysfunctional world, you don't know it. You know, you just swim in the water you're in. And I'm like, what's, what's your dad doing? But the one thing my dad did for me and my two brothers, he poured confidence into us. I mean, just poured it. I remember he would sit us on the couch and he would say, boys, you're a die. And we're like, really? Like, that's important? Yeah, it's important. And dies can do anything. And I really believe that a lot of the confidence I live with today is directly tied to the confidence my dad poured into me. I really grew up thinking that we were exceptional. Now, it took me a while to figure out that that was all wrong, but it was fun while it lasted. You know what I'm saying? And when my dad died, I've got a friend, Ray Gary. <clears throat> Ray's, Ray's dad was super successful. Ray was uh, the governor. The, his grandfather was the governor of Oklahoma. And... Uh, Ray called me and he said, you know, Bill, he said, we all know your dad. He said, he had his faults. He said, but the one thing your dad did was he instilled confidence in you guys. And I thought, you know what? He sure did. And I think dad did that because his dad did not do it for him. He knew the power of encouragement. And because of that, I've always known it. I, I, sometimes I take it for granted and I don't realize other people need it because I've always had it. You know what I'm saying? Um, one of the main reasons we are attending church is to lift each other up. And man, we need to do that. We need to figure that out. We need to look for people. We lift each other up and we lift the lost up. And this world is hurting. It's not just believers that are hurting. Everybody's hurting and they're cut off. And they're. Where do you go to belong if you don't go to church? Where do you go? I mean, what do you do besides what are you friends with all your coworkers until you get tired of them? What do you do to belong if, if you don't belong to a church, if you don't belong to something bigger than you? And, and what happens is everybody just sort of plows into technology and they wrap themselves in the cocoon of technology as if technology was going to be the answer. And they'll pull into their driveway, they'll hit the garage door button, the garage door goes up, they pull in, the garage door comes down, they turn on the internet and they lose themselves in technology. And that'll make you feel lonelier than ever. Um, I read this years ago in his, in his review of Peter Varick's The Unadjusted Man, A New Hero for America. Jeffrey Brunn writes, ours is an orphan age severed from its historic past by the transforming impact of dynamic technology. Today, every individual in the lonely crowd is haunted by a sense of desolation and incommunicable singularity. In this age of longing, Arthur Kessler Countless millions have found no resources for coping with the common human experience described in Melville's classic line, a quote, damp, dizzly, a, a damp, drizzly November in my soul. The purposelessness of our mislaid generation provides fertile soil for the seeds of marital pathology, interpersonal conflict, and personal illnesses. Man, they're drowning in it. They are drowning in loneliness. They're drowning in despair. And we were put here for them. I mean, look at what Jesus said about Jerusalem in Luke 19.41. It says, And when He approached Jerusalem 
he saw the city and wept over it. And I remind you, that's the same city that was going to nail him to the cross. He wept over it. Years ago, I read this thing called the parable of a life-saving station. It was a story of, of how churches are like life-saving stations and how there's this, you know, this life-saving station. It's on this rugged coast and all these, all these you know, wrecks would happen and they'd get in the boats and they'd row out and they'd save them and bring them back. And, and then as that time went by, people said, you know, this is too messy. We need to get another building and clean up the people before they can come in. It's, it's a long, drawn-out thing. And I've always thought, man, that is a brilliant analogy for how churches are. They start out as life-saving stations. They wind up as museums, right? But then I got to thinking, is Christianity really like a life-saving station? Because here's the problem. This world that I live in that's drowning in despair, loneliness, emptiness, anxiety, uh, depression, all of those things, it's not obvious. I mean, if a person is drowning in water, you pretty much know what to do, right? You like jump in the water and try to save them. But if a person is drowning in anxiety, what do you do? Because they're going to be really good at putting on a face so that you don't even know that they're drowning. How would you even know? And that's the problem we have. I mean, if we're going to lift up the lost, then we can't do it from a distance. we got to get closer. And I'm really processing this, and I'm working this out with some of the guys on the team, and, and we really want to kind of make this an imagery for our, for our staff to understand. We're going to real, I'm going to unpack it a lot on our staff retreat this year, but, but it's the concept of what I would call the intimacy cone or the intimacy funnel. And that is that for me, to, what's, what's wrong with every evangelism strategy you know of? It doesn't work. That's what's wrong with why? Why, when the Jehovah Witnesses come to your door, are they not successful? They're nutty, they're crazy, they have crazy ideas, all of that. No, I've got a lot of family that has those ideas. Not Jehovah Witness, but they're nutty and crazy, right? But we listen to them. Why? Because of intimacy. That's the problem with the Mormons. They knock on your door. I'm not intimate with you. Bam, I slam the door. I don't slam it, but I'm like, hey, dude, I'm a Baptist pastor. Do you really want to go here? And it's like, no, we'll see you later. Um, and we're the same way. It's like, you know, we'll come up to somebody we don't even know and we'll go, hey, if a tricycle had a spare tire, how many wheels would it have? Four. Speaking of four, has anybody shared with you the four spiritual laws? And, you know, it just, there's no intimacy and because of that, there's no influence. you got to have influence. So what I was thinking is we got to think about it in terms of a cone. And really, it works like a house, you know. Like when I moved to Houston, and it was different because in Houston, in the suburbs, everybody wants a friend. But I started my ministry in the front yard, just watering the grass. The guy next to me had never lived near a preacher, would hide in the garage until I went in because he didn't know what to do. His name was Mike Thomas. Mike Thomas, I reached Mike for Christ. Carol reached Carol for Christ. Mike actually built the pulpit for my little church and a gifted guy, an engineer. Next door, Rob and Ruth Ann. Next door, David and Elena. And before it was done, four houses on our side of the street, and then we had several empty houses, so it was harder. They all finally came to Jesus. But it worked like this. It started in the front yard. 
just open relationships. And then we'd move to the backyard. And the backyard's a little more intimate. It's you gotta, you gotta be invited to somebody's backyard. You don't walk in, you can walk into somebody's front yard, but you gotta be invited to the backyard. And then as time goes by, you wind up heading into the kitchen, right? And in the kitchen, you're talking about a little more personal things. Maybe things aren't going well at job. Maybe things are going poor in the family. And you start to get to know them, and they start to begin to develop relationships. And before you know it, you're in the living room, and you're sitting instead of standing. And all of a sudden, you can have some conversations until ultimately you wind up in what room? The den. And the den's where life makes up its mind, right? That's where you pull your shoes off and you get honest. And that degree of intimacy is the thing that allows for influence, which allows us to lift up the lost. Because when they realize you're safe, and they realize that they can explore their own issues with you, then they're going to listen to what you have to say. And so for us as a church, we've got to constantly be trying to figure out ways to build the funnels to allow people in. Because our calling is to lift up the lost. You know, there's a, there's a verse in Job, and Job is mad at God um, at this point. And uh, he's basically saying the, the bad guys are getting off and the good guys are suffering. But he makes this interesting statement about human condition. He said, from the city men groan and the souls of the wounded cry out. And that's one of those verses when you read it, you just kind of underline it. From the city men grow and the souls of the wounded cry out. But that cry is so soft, you got to get close enough to hear it. You see what I'm saying? So man, we lift each other up and then we lift the lost up. And then obviously we lift the Lord up. And isn't that what worship is? I lift up the one that is lifted up. It's interesting that I'm lifting up the one who doesn't need me to lift him up. He's already lifted up. But the word worship means to ascribe worth to. The Greek word is proskuneo, and it means to, it means to dog toward. It's the same expression that you would use of a dog who greets his master when he comes in the door, and he's just, just want to be with you and lick your hand and position myself as a dog would before my master. Uh, the Hebrew word means to bow low, but both of them have the idea to acknowledge the sovereignty and the authority and the majesty of God and to lift Him up. And here's what I realized, and here's the power of it. When I lift Him up, He lifts up the one who lifts Him. Look at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, high and lifted up. With the train of his robe filling the temple, seraphim stood above him, having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. So Isaiah sing the Lord high and lifted up. And in that moment, he realizes who he is in light of who God is. Then I said, 
Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For, the eye, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth, and with it he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away from you, and your sin is forgiven." The beautiful irony is that when we lift Him up and we realize who we are in light of who He is, we ourselves are lifted. Number 624. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. Here it is. You ready? The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. Isn't that what we need more than anything right now? You see, here's the beautiful irony. We live in a world that's trying to lift themselves up. Everybody's trying to lift himself up. God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to lift each other up. I want you to lift the lost up. And I want you to lift me up. And when you lift me up, I will lift up the one who lifts me. And I will give you what? Peace. Would you pray with me? Father, we need peace. Thank you for lifting us up tonight through your word. Thank you for this time of worship in song. Let us go from this place refreshed, ready to start again. Don't let us quit. Don't let us give up. Don't let us become cynical. But Father, do a fresh work in us, a fresh wind, a fresh fire, as you lift us up, because we lift you up. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.